Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. There are filmmakers that, you know, are very, very good at corralling troops together, mm. you know, and, and, and utilising the skills of others to help them. And to be honest, I think there, you know, that is the way to, to do it. And uh, mm. you'll, you'll gain success a lot quicker that way. But my whole training as a filmmaker, even from youth, has been, you know, from making Super 8 films with my best mate to going to Swinburne where there wasn't a lot of money. Mm. It's, it's all been guerrilla filmmaking. And it's like, well, we need lights. Okay, let's open the garage door and drive mum's car in there and turn the high beams on. It's, <laughs> we need makeup. Okay, I think my mum's got something else. You know, so it's, and it's funny, I still find it hard to shake that. And to be honest, I have enjoyed wearing the different hats that I've had over the years. And I also think it makes you a better filmmaker if you have a really deep appreciation for all the jobs mm. required. So there's not much on a film set that I haven't done or tried or are not still doing. Mm. How are you going, friends across the world? Welcome to episode 58 of Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. That's me. I am your humble host, Alistair Marks. And can I tell you, we have an absolutely cracking show this week. No flies on my guest this episode. You may know him from his most famous work, a story about a janitor with a heart of gold. The film is, of course, the Australian classic comedy, Kenny. And my guest this week is the man behind the film, Clay Jacobson. Before we jump into the interview, though, my friends, have you thought about making your own film, perhaps? Maybe you clicked on this link because you thought you'd get some hot tips. Maybe you've thought about recording your own podcast. Maybe you just want to get some new recording equipment. Well, you may have noticed the sound quality of Coming Up Next has most certainly gone up to 11. And it's all thanks to the good people at Rode Microphones. Rode Microphones deliver you superior audio quality at an affordable price. So, you know, if you're looking to start your own podcast, perhaps like a boss, record some music or shoot a film, Rode Microphones have got you covered. Check out Rode.com, that's R-O-D-E.com, to find out more information about their products. And, you know, while you're on the World Wide Web, be sure to jump on comingupnext.com.au, follow the links, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean, leave a review, like the Facebook page, and you know what? I'll make sure the quality of the guests stays at an absolute premium with people like my guest this week, Clay Jacobson. You know, you just can't, you can't do it on your own unless you're, you know, making a, a very small commercial, you know, in the back of your house, which I do do from time to time. We're actually sitting in my studio at the moment. <laughs> we are sitting yeah. in your studio. And it's, I was remarking before about how awesome it is. And, you know, this is kind of living the dream in a sense. And you said to me off air that this is kind of the dream that you've had since you were 16 years That's old. Right. And it's sort of been 40 years in the making. Mm. I'm trying to think of where... I think... I think my fascination with wanting to have my own studio, and when I say studio, it's a four-car garage you know, <laughs> that I've soundproofed. You said six cars. Oh, maybe it is six. It actually it is six, isn't it? I think it is six. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I think my love of the kind of backyard filmmaking came from Star Wars. You know, like you know, I was obsessed with that when I was sixteen, and uh, when it came out, and all the making of it, I was sort of acutely aware that. The film that I, I just completely invested my heart and soul in, where I absolutely believed I'd just gone into the universe mm. and, and watched a galactic war, had been mostly shot in garages. Like, you know, the, you know a good deal, or, or really small studios. Mm. Um, and a lot of the, it, it, was very, it was a very low-budget film. It was very sort of, you know, a lot of it was, was you know, they were, yes, they shot in, at Pine Studios, but if you look at a lot of the, the, the industrial light magic stuff that they were doing, they were done on car park back lots and mm. people's garages. And, um, and, 
and I think Ray Harryhausen too. I think it was that was his name. He did a lot of the animation and you know the old sort of uh, style uh, stop motion animation, which my good mate Ray Bosley and I did when we were kids. You know, a lot of that is traditionally sort of done in the backyard of your house or something. Mm. So um, yeah, I finally got there, and um, and and it's been great. I've been doing a lot of music videos, and for me. Uh, the great thing about filmmaking for me is trying to find a because you know filmmaking seems to destroy relationships so often, <laughs> and and uh, I know so many people that, whose families have been a casualty of their dreams, and I've never wanted that to happen. And so I've worked very hard to have a balance. Mm. And the great thing about having all this at my house is I can be directing in the back at yard, and have my family involved. You know, we quite often when I do music videos, I invite the band to come and stay with us. You know, we've got a couple of spare rooms and mm. we'll we'll spend two days shooting rather than the standard frenzied day, you know, where you know you're paying $1,000 for a studio space. Well, I'm not paying anything for the studio space other than, you know, the rates. And um, so I get them to come and stay and we spend two days shooting and it's leisurely and my son, you know, is now 20 and he's doing CGI work for me and uh, we said it's a family affair. It's great. Wow. Mm. That's really cool. Mm. A, a common uh, topic on, on this podcast is about maintaining relationships in the entertainment industry <laughs> or in any creative I- industry really because, as you say, I think it is fraught with uh, mm-hmm. challenges and you find I, I have so far found that there's sort of two two people. There's the people who really champion and support each other, um, often who are two people who both work in the industry. Yes. Or there's the other end of the spectrum where it's people who you know work 16 hour days and they come home and the other and the partner doesn't understand or mm-hmm. and as you say that you know takes its toll on a family or on a relationship and eventually it breaks down it does and and it's um and you know and I was very nearly guilty of that as well you know when making Kenny it was you know the choice to do you know to sort of like what we we're saying before to do as many of the roles as I could to keep costs down we spent two years on that. I, I, you know, it was very taxing mm. on my family, and uh, there wasn't a single. I think I counted in the two years that I was doing the film. I, I think that I, I wasn't counting, but I know that there was probably only a, a handful of times that I went to bed at the same time as Vic to sort of, you know, to just be in the bedroom and, t- and chat with her and talk about our day. I was generally crawling into bed at three in the morning and getting up at eight mm. um every time she'd go to have a conversation with me the phone would ring and that would take precedence over um over whatever we were discussing you know mm. uh, because i was trying to get the marketing happening trying to get deals going trying to get international sales agents and so uh, yeah I, I you know i can honestly say that i haven't always got the balance right but i did after that mm. and uh and I think it's you've got to work out what you're willing to sacrifice and what you're not willing to sacrifice to sort of have your dreams. And for me, it's always been I've watched too many friends sort of, um, you know, sort of get on their dream throne <laughs> where they've had success and they've got no one to share it with, you know. And um, the greatest joy I have is sharing whatever success I've had with my family. And mm. the greatest example of that is I'm reminded of that Every time I see my brother on screen, you know, mm. you know, we made a movie together and he became a star from it. And, and my, you know, even as recent as uh, last week, I shot a commercial and my son was in it and you know, it was a commercial with Shane in it. And yeah, I love that. It's just, and that has a wonderful effect too on it, the crew and anyone that's around when they see a family working together. So, mm. you know, um, yeah, it's a hard, hard balance. Yeah. Uh, and from the outside looking in, it certainly appears as though you've done an incredible job of finding that balance and I guess really using the platform that you've created for yourself mm. to bring as many people along for the ride, I suppose, or along for the dream as possible. Yeah, and uh, the, I can honestly say, and it's probably good advice too, the thing that I... You can convince yourself as a filmmaker that you just need every minute that you have in a day to get where you're going because it is so hard and you've got and you know that if and it's there's truth to this that mm. the hour you don't spend is the hour that the other guy is spending to get there ahead of you you know so 
But there's also a false economy in this, which I've discovered. And I, this was driven home to me uh, working overseas in Asia on car commercials, mm. where we did this one car commercial. And I said, so, you know, when do we start? And when do we finish? And the production manager said, you can shoot as long as you want. I said, you never tell the director that. You know, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, and he said, we can start at nine in the morning. And if you want, we can shoot till, you know, 10 o'clock the next day. I said, that's insane. That will kill the crew. And he said, oh, that's fine. We can always get more crew. And, but, you know, like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I, uh, I, was, I thought, well, this is actually an amazing opportunity. This will be an incredible ad because I'll be able to just do so much more than I'm used to. Well, that wasn't the case mm. because human beings being what they are and these poor bastards being used to Westerners coming in and just abusing that, which we were doing, <laughs> mm. um, you know, they pace themselves. Because they know they're going to be working all day and all night. So what we managed to do in 24 hours was less than what I'm used to doing in a 10-hour day here with a crew. Mm. Because, you know, basically you work within the, the time limits that you give yourself. So the lesson in all of this for me after that was, okay, I think I know what I do wrong. I think I tell myself I need every minute of the day. But I know that I'm exhausted a lot of the time. And I'm, I'm kind of pacing myself and my family are missing out. Mm. So for the, ever since Kenny came out, what I've done is I, I made a... It was my son that actually brought this about. He, um, he got quite angry at me one day while we were doing posts and to, told me that he was sick of Kenny. He didn't want to hear anything ever more about it. He didn't want me talking about it at the home. He said, everything in our family is Kenny this, Kenny that. <laughs> and it has been. The bloody film was 10 years ago and it's still you know, always being mentioned in the house or you know, with people that I work with. So anyway, I made a promise to them that I would try and give them at least one day on a weekend and, and I would always make sure that I at least sat with everyone for an hour and a half a night and we watched a TV show together or we, and that I would always be there at the dinner table and we would always, you know, and, um, and you know, apart from all the, the chores of everyday sort of living together in a family. But I found that that's worked a treat because what it does is it regiments the hours that you've got and mm. the hours you know you have to put aside for family. And, and it makes the time with your family so much more enjoyable because you're not stressing out about the fact that you should be doing this other thing. I know how creative people think. It's like, this is lovely, but I'm driving around having a lovely time with my family, but all I'm thinking about is this idea that I've got to... Mm. You know, but what's nice when you start designating those times, I, find, I found that I, can't, I just turn off from all my work. I go, well, that's family time. And... I find that the time that I'm then spending creatively is so much more in intense mm. and so much more productive. And here's the, the kicker with all of this, that I've sp I spent the first 42 years of my life, you know, well, the first 32 years after, from about 10 to 42 trying to make a movie. Mm. And I, I nearly killed myself doing it. And I didn't write many scripts. I found myself floundering a lot of the time. I was doing stuff, making short films and what have you. But at the end of the day... The last, the period after which my son kind of laid the law down for me to now has been the most productive in terms of developing projects. I haven't made another film since, but I've been trying ever since. You know, it's, it's not easy to make films in this country. But I now have seven projects that are very close to being ready to go. And the average Australian film takes eight to ten years to do. So I seem to have got the balance right for now. I, you know, time will prove me right or wrong. <laughs> It's it's important that I, one of the things I'm learning, I suppose philosophically, which uh, which is I think what you're highlighting is the importance of having boundaries and really clear and well defined boundaries in your life, in all areas, so that you know for yourself this is the time for this, this is the time for mm. that, this is what I'm willing to compromise, this is what I'm not willing to compromise, mm. um, and as a creative, uh, and I think. Again, to further your point, this is a lifestyle that we've chosen. It's not a job. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we are working weekends. We are working. We're not doing nine to five, mm -hmm. Monday to Friday in our little office and then coming home to watch the footy Friday night and have beers. No. We, we may come home to watch the footy and have beers, um, but, you know, chances are we're going to be working after that or we're going to be script writing or, or whatever it may be. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think having those really clearly defined boundaries would really serve a person uh, in knowing and and feeding that kind of creative lifestyle. Well, I've come to realise that exactly what you're saying is true, 
and I actually find the the best that we can be as creatives is when we embrace the boundaries and the compromises. Mm. Um, because if you have got all the money in the world, all the time in the world, all the freedoms in the world, it's just where do you go? What do you do? What do you you know? Maybe there are some people that would you know you know would would love that that kind of freedom. But for mm. me personally, I you know filmmaking is problem solving. So what I love is, you know, I love having those boundaries there from, from, and I think it's true of all forms of f- creativity, even working with actors. It's about giving actors boundaries but mm. still allow, allowing them the freedom. You know, you create the sandbox for them but then give them the freedom to play within that sandbox and, and invent and, sh- and show, that, strut their stuff. But the boundaries help. Otherwise, things flounder, you know, and I find that, being a director, writer, or producer, or anything, and, and you know, you need those boundaries. Even a grip, you know, needs a boundary of well, we're going to we're going to push the camera from here to here. You know, mm. like you don't just say start setting up tracks and we'll work it out. <laughs> like, like, you know, what I mean, and the guy just looking at you and said, you need a railway track, not a fucking grip. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's so I find, you know, and I've the gag that I've always had is that the compromise trucks turn up before any other film truck and they unload yeah. more gear than any <laughs> anything that you can hire. And um, but I have I've I have learnt that some of my favourite things that I've done or that have kind of uh, come to the surface in in any of my creative have, have come from embracing those accidents. Mm. Uh, even the album we've just done, you know, was like, you know, there were a couple of songs where we were struggling and what came out of that struggle has made those two songs some of our favourite tunes that we were actually getting ready to ditch, you know. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's good to have have boundaries. Mm. Mm. You mentioned before that uh, you were 10 when you started Mm. or when you first thought about making a feature film Mm. Uh, and I was reading that you have storytelling kind of embedded in your DNA. You come from a a family of um, of circus performers. Yeah, well, my my grandparents on my father's side, um, they ran a, a small carnival. And so they toured around uh, Australia, mostly around Victoria, but around Australia. And my father was eight when my grandfather died and they had to sell up the carnival. And then they lived, the brothers and sister and, and mother lived in a tent in Maribyrnong, one of the carnival tents, until he was 23 years of age. Um, but Dad has many strong memories of those carnival years. And um, so spruiking was a big part. Of and they would barter like while they were they, and they were kind of rogues. <laughs> I heard a lot of there's a lot of very funny stories. And, you know, Dad would say they had the dancing, not so funny for the chicken. They had a, da- a dancing chicken, right. and you know people would pay and the chicken would dance. And Dad used to say, "You'd dance too if you were standing on a hot plate." <laughs> and um, you know, so they'd fire up the hot plate when everyone paid enough money, and it's a terrible thing. You know, and then the other thing they had is if anyone was winning, they were sort of about to win them out of out of out of their their weekly meals. Um, they had a snake charmer, and they would go and get him, and they'd say, "This guy's cleaning us up," you know. And so he would walk over with his trench coat and drop a python at his feet, and then yell out "snake," and then everyone would clear, and they'd shut the circus down, uh, the the carnival down, and they could get away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, it was. Uh, but also, I think it, um, so. My dad's always been a, a really good storyteller. I mean, it's interesting because um, you know, dad's nickname is Johnny Jake, and you know, he was 14 years old before he even knew his name was Ronald, and he thought his name was Johnny, but they only called him that because they had a ventriloquist that toured with them, mm. and his doll was called Johnny, and this guy used to put dad on his knee and make him look like one of the dolls, and yeah. so they called him Johnny after the doll. So, and also, we're named after. Like I'm named after a, a film, a, a cowboy, and uh, and Clay Hollister, I think, was the name of the character. And Shane's named after the movie Shane. And uh, and my mum was a dance teacher, and I, we spent most of our youth. My mother would rent out the Progress Theatre in Coburg and watch musicals and get all the girls in to watch it. And I was sort of dragged along because I was the her firstborn. And so I I spent my whole childhood in a bassinet, you know, in a theatre full of you know, mum's, um, you know, dancing dance students. Mm. You know, watching you know every musical ever made. So I have a soft spot for musicals. I don't know why I haven't made one yet. <laughs> Soon, yeah. Maybe. Do, do you remember the first time that you ever uh, performed or entertained or something in this kind of sphere? And I guess it's is is this your first memory 
of something that you wanted to pursue further that then became yeah. part of your dream? The very first thing that lit, lit me up was Danny Kay. It was an album called The Littlest Fiddle. And it was a single that we had. And at age four, I could mime to this thing word perfect wow. and my mum being the dance teacher would put me in a purple tuxedo <laughs> and I was the little um I actually have never told this story but I, uh, they used to take me mum would I was their little party trick so they would take this suit and this single to any if we went to parties and they would say you know we'll get clay and they would generally stand me on a on a on a, um, a footstool mm because I was so short, and put me in my purple suit and then someone would put on the album and then I'd mime to it, you know. And uh, uh, I, I played it to my son not that long ago. <laughs> it's an insane <laughs> album, but it's, but uh, yeah, it's, it's basically Danny Kaye um, creating a whole story about um, the French horn that was out to kill the little fiddle. And oh, so it's I this whole that. story about, um, you know, or- orchestral instruments at war with one another. And, yeah. 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 Uh, and then along and came the French horn. Balong, balong, balong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I remember listening to yeah, that yeah. as a kid. Yeah, so and that the was the Glockenspiel did the something. Glock, yeah. yeah. And then the, 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 uh, the Glockenspiel. Yeah, you've heard it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And his heart went to happen. He did have it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. There's the, yeah. So that was my first sort of window. And then, of course, my mum, being a dance teacher, she bought one of the first video cameras that I think anyone in the western suburbs ever had mm. and I just stared at this thing I wasn't allowed to touch it and I stared at this thing for weeks and weeks and finally I convinced it to let me shoot some stuff with it and then when I went to primary school our library teacher Mr. Moore had a um, had a reel-to-reel black and white reel-to-reel and my mate and I uh, we started making little films at, mm. at, 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 in grade five and six and I remember we did little episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man and uh, <laughs> wow. we made claws out of Meccano and a duster was a weapon. If you rub the duster on the blackboard with enough chalk and you threw it at someone, it kind of, you get this big cloud of dust. So it looked like a weapon, mm. you know, with the right sound effects. And uh, yeah, it was great fun. And so kind of coming out of that, in, into your sort of teen years making Super 8 films like you used to say and some stop motion animation mm. stuff um, and then you went to Swinburne University you That's mentioned right. before yep Swinburne which was uh, a, both a great experience and a devastating one for me um, I had been brought up in the western suburbs you know feeling kind of unique in the sense that there weren't many kids making films and we used to make films for our school projects and stuff and stuff mm. and it would blow people away you know we'd come in with a super 8 project and they say what are you doing well this is my assignment and they go oh what and we turn all the lights off and and i remember doing my one of my first animated assignments was all about kangaroos strangely mm. enough and i'm surrounded by them now so <laughs> uh, and um and it was all just animated kangaroos on a on a on a on a, on a, on a board and uh um, it's funny, my life does go in cycles. You know, even right behind you as we speak, there's an there's an Oxbury animation stand that I just picked up from a friend of mine who was getting rid of it. Huh. Weighs about four ton, and uh, and uh, it's the kind of stuff that Disney was doing this sort of animation on when I was a kid. But yeah, I I I, uh, I, I did that. And then when I, but when I went to Swinburne, I so I had this dream to I, I wanted to be like Spielberg or Woody Allen, and you know Monty Python, Woody Allen, you know Spielberg. Jerry Lewis. These were directors. I, I really loved Jer- Jerry Lewis as a director. I was mm. acutely aware of how innovative he was. At a, at a, I, I couldn't believe that he could... I was so acutely aware that he was doing these ridiculous things on screen, but he clearly... His films seemed really smart in how he created little juxtapositions and some of the visual gags were so sophisticated. You know, he was the Jacques Tati of America, you know? Mm. Um, but uh, when I got to Swinburne, I was immediately told that all of those influences were to be ignored. You know, like there's no room for, par- uh, you know, parody is dead. Uh, I mentioned that I loved uh, Monty Python and, you know, and they said, and I remember being told, well, this isn't Hollywood, you know, we're, we're, we're here to teach you to be an auteur, you know. Mm. And people forget that, but there was a big, you know, we'd come out of the 70s and the 60s, there was this big sort of push for the arts to be worthy, you know. Um, and I didn't feel that, you know. Um, so there was a bit of a struggle for me at Swimbin, sort of finding my place and where I fit in amongst it all. But I, 
Um, we had some great lecturers and uh, and the the networking that you do at film school is just so great. I'm still friend, I'm still working with my fellow students. Yeah. You know, just shot a pilot for the ABC where you know Peter Falk, who I was at you know school, he he shot it for me. You know, it's amazing. Mm. Um, yeah, I also went to Swinburne uh, probably once it had been switched to VCA and then the new Swinburne opened mm. uh, before between when you would have been there, but it was a similar sort of vibe in the sense that my uh, the sort of filmmakers I was looking to also you know Woody Allen Spielberg uh, Tarantino mm. Guy Ritchie um, those kind of uh, Kevin Smith that kind of cutting edge mm. new style of filmmakers and again I was sort of I was the odd one out for wanting to make a film that might be commercially viable. Yeah. None of your favorite directors had German names. No. Yeah. No. Or Italian for that matter. <laughs> well, I did French. like Gaspar No, yeah. but yeah, yeah. I was never going to make a film about um, someone who goes on a bloody revenge mission because his <laughs> girlfriend's raped. Was that the order of the day when you were... It's funny, I always find it interesting talking to film students about what, what were the themes in your year. Because yeah. what I've found is every, every year there were common themes. When I was at Swinburne there in our final year, it was all priests. Right. Uh, priests, I don't know why, but that was that was pretty big, um, and you know, in isolation is always a common yeah, thing. Yeah. But uh, what did you have? What were your? What was I don't know. For some reason, I always remember clowns flipping pancakes, but that, just, <laughs> that might just be the cliche art house <laughs> imagery. Yeah. Um, so, so did you struggle? So did you struggle to find? Did you? You know. Uh, not not in the same way that you're kind of describing. Mm. Uh, I was very fortunate to have a great mentor in um, Richard Franklin. Who, oh, wow. Yeah, um, yeah. You may know directed things like Road Games and yeah. Patrick too. Great. Uh, and he described a similar kind of struggle to what you're saying when he was at film school, although I think he was at USC in um, San Diego. No, in uh, LA. Uh, but he was saying that his um, his idols were um uh alfred hitchcock and john ford and right. these were not people these were not filmmakers that were widely recognized john ford wasn't as that well that's what he told me wow but i think i think his point was when 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 he was there when that, he was yeah, there yeah. they weren't right widely recognized i guess it was more after their after they'd already made a lot of films well i was laughed at when i mentioned that i liked um jerry lewis as a director mm. like that. Actually, to get into Swinburne, I, <laughs> I, uh, I think I might have got in because they probably thought I was so clued into the industry that I was even ahead of them because they asked who my favourite director was and I rattled off a few of those names, but I also said John Steinbeck. Yeah. Right? And I walked out <laughs> and turned to my mate who I'd been making films with and we got in as a, as a team, Ray and I, and I said, uh, John Steinbeck? He said, yeah. I said, uh, author right and he goes yeah i said yeah <laughs> so i just told them that he was my favorite director and like he go why would you say that? i said because i was thinking of stanley kubrick but i said john steinbeck so <laughs> they're kind of similar yeah you know? yeah and you you put yourself through film school by cleaning toilets i did i did indeed and uh and and i worked at, there was a video store just around the corner from swinburne so I did that for a short while. I was like at night, I would, you know, go down and sort of open up and, and work down there. And I, 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 I worked in a number of video stores between the age of about 18 to 23, uh, which I actually enjoyed because it was a great way to catch up on all my favourite films. I'm not, I was very sneaky. I would always put on my favourite films in the background while serving customers. And I'm sure they thought I was engaging in them, but I really wasn't. I was just <laughs> getting my left and right hemisphere to sort of do two very different things. One was, you know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I um, managed to get a job cleaning uh, toilets and offices for James Hardy in Sunshine. And, oh, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was for one. That was to get the money to make my final year. I was just so acutely aware that we had all these students from the east side and their parents were, you know, giving them 10, 15 grand. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get that. And uh, mm. so I had to save up for it. And uh, yeah, it was a, a nutty year. It was a year of waking up at four in the morning, driving to sunshine, cleaning the toilets, um, getting in the car, racing home, having breakfast, getting, getting on a tram, heading in by train to Swinburne and coming home at night, getting in the car, racing back to clean the offices and then coming home, going straight to sleep, <laughs> you know, and somewhere in amongst all that writing, um, 
Never for never in a million years would I have thought that that would have some impact on me later on. Mm. You know? But it it did because I was treated pretty harshly by those at the factory. You know, they you know it's where I got my first window on what it is to you know be a servant to society. You mm. you're, you're made to feel that, and you, you are actually serving the society in a way that is really uh, is re- really valid. And uh, and you know we should you know I I, I, I learnt very quickly that. Um, that at Swinburne they were teaching to be, me to be the great auteur and <laughs> by morning and night I was being made to feel like I was the scum of the earth and, and I knew the, the answer to both of those was somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and when you finished uh, at Swinburne you uh, started uh, editing. Yeah, well, that came about because my third year film was slightly devastating <laughs> for me because I, I had written a film that was 40 minutes long and we could, I could only afford a 10-minute movie. Mm. And uh, I think it worked out to be a little bit more than that. To my shock and horror, they've actually put it online now. But um, <laughs> I, uh, What's it called? It's called To One's Own Heart. or It, it had two titles for some bizarre reason. I'm not sure which title it's under at the moment. Its original title was Orgy of Destruction. Right. <laughs> and it's basically my, um, yeah, it's my attempt at being the worthy filmmaker that they wanted me to be. And so it's very, it's basically eight and a half, you know. it's mm, a, Very earnest. Uh, yeah. And it's about the struggles of being a filmmaker trying to find an idea. Mm. Um, and it's a very naive little film. When, uh, but, but. The truth is I wrote something that was um, infinitely a lot different to what you'll see in that film. And it's, um, and when it came to editing it, I realised I couldn't afford to actually make the movie that I'd shot. I, I was devastated. I felt like a total fraud and a failure. And uh, I, 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 I ended up cutting it down into about, a, I don't know how long it is. I think it's 15 minutes or something like that. But I ended up getting a distinction for my editing. And I didn't realize I was a good editor, but I clearly was. And um, I just knew that I was, I'd failed as a director. And I remember winning the award and feeling like a fraud. And I, I remember thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm not a director then. If they're saying I can edit, then maybe that's what I should do. And then I kind of thought, well, actually, you know, we'd already had people come in and tell us that, you know, just so you know, when you leave film school, it'll be five years before you get your directing job. I thought, well, I'm not waiting. I want to get straight in I thought well if I edit for other directors I should be able to step straight into a gig you know and I did so I spent 10 years hiding from direction and working with some of Australia's best what turned out to be Australia's best directors I didn't know it at the time but they certainly became that Mm. Um, and um, everyone you know from you know John Hillcote to Andrew Dominic to Creep Stenders to Paul Goldman to Richard Lowenstein to you know Jane Campion and uh, all these, you know, guys I was editing for them all. And I thought, well, this is great. I can learn from their mistakes and successes, you know. And then when I get to direct, I'll just step in and it'll be brilliant, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, when I got to finally got the courage to start directing, I made all the mistakes they did and I invented, you know, a good, you know, few thousand more. Um, <laughs> but editing has actually always been my, I think it is actually my solid base. I, I, I think there are, I think no matter what I do, even acting, even acting in this series, you know, I think that the, the, the skills of, a, of being a cutter are always f- first and foremost present. You know, like, how will this be cut together? How will this sit in an edit? You know, is what I'm doing just great on set because it's a fabulous shot with a drone? Mm. But I know it'll be 37 frames long in the commercial. It's not going to be the four-second shot that we're all, you know, guffawing over, yeah. you know. So I think, it's a, I think it's a great skill to have as a filmmaker. You know, you really should spend time editing, even if you're not good at it. I think it's worth doing just to sort of have a sense, you know. We, you know, you can always find a great cutter, but it's good to at least have put yourself through those paces mm. and to know how an editor thinks, you know. Yeah, Kevin Smith describes it as the final draft of the script. Oh, yeah. And, you, I mean, you can... I mean, I learnt this... I actually learnt the value of editing, strangely, not through filmmaking so much. I was always aware that Hitchcock's films were really beautifully cut, you know, like the whole North by Northwest sort of sequence that everyone, you know, that's all in the editing, you know, that whole sequence where he's at the, at the, um, 
which I, I noticed uh, Goldstone has a lovely sort of reference to the mm. new film Goldstone. But uh, it's all done in the edit. It's just how it's just this ever increasing pace of wide shots. That a, you know, a wide shot is generally an undramatic thing. You know, a bus are slowly closing, a farmer, you know, in a, in a field, a crop duster, a good mile away, mm. and a man at a corner that's nowhere near all three. But it's the it's the rhythm of how those edits slowly start to compress that makes you feel uneasy. Mm. That something is going to happen between these three elements that are seemingly nowhere near him. You know, um, but I <laughs> my first. Exposure to the, 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 the trickery of, of editing was we had 60 Minutes come to Swinburne and do a story on us. And it was a hell of a story. Mm. Bore no resemblance to anything that I had experienced at Swinburne. But <laughs> they came in with a preconceived notion of what they were going to do. And it didn't matter what we said on camera or how it was. But that was how it was put together. Mm. You know, and it was, um, it, was, it was fascinating to me. You just had the clock in the background changing time very dramatically. Yeah, yeah it did. But it's, it no, but they, they, it just it was very apparent that, you know, um, you know, if someone was saying something in an interview and they wanted to discredit it, they just needed a cutaway of the, the interviewer looking a little bored. And the audience go, well, that person's not buying anything he's saying. Mm. So he must be lying, you know. Having someone say something really profound, but then holding off on the person's response by three seconds will make an audience question what that person thinks of what's just been said. Mm. Why didn't he just immediately answer? There must be something, we're being told a lie. You know, or <laughs> it's, uh, uh, there's a wonderful experiment that every filmmaker should do, and I did this many years ago, and, and it's more to do with music, I guess, than editing. But it's, um, I, I, I took th- uh, four images, a, sequence, a simple sequence of a guy coming through a front door, walking past a kitchen, looking in, and there's someone cutting something in the kitchen and then they, they exchange glances and then he walks, one of the guy that walks in the house walks off. Mm. I then laid 15 different soundtracks to that, that, those same shots. And what was the end result was really incredible. I got a totally different feeling from every, every single one of those soundtracks gave me a totally different feeling. It actually impacted on the editing. So I think music is a big part of that equation as mm. well. You know, I think you know, getting back to what we're saying about being in a band and, and you know, having different skill bases, I think music and music and editing is just so important in films because music is the sort of emotional signature of how you respond to what you're seeing. Mm. You know, visuals are just information, you know. You know you can, sound effects are equally as If you have someone standing, out, you know, standing by a door, you know, so someone comes in through a front door and stands there and doesn't advance and stands with their back against the door. If you have a barking dog outside, you know where they've just come from. Mm. If you can hear someone, you know, you know, loading up a Glock, you, know, then you go, oh, my God. You know, you hear children laughing out there. You can have a totally different feeling to that same mm. image. You know, it just so impacts. Um, it's like all those uh, those kind of genre-bending trailers that are on YouTube where you've got The Shining as a romantic comedy. And mm. really the only thing that's different is the music. No, you're absolutely right. That is the, the yeah. Watch as many of those as you because it it does it completely changes everything. The Mary Poppins one was pretty pretty good. Did you yeah, see yeah. That? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you kind of go on this. Uh, I I suppose I'm gonna say it's a learning curve, but this work experience, kind of getting your footing in the industry, starting to work and build relationships mm. and network. How long is it before you start conceiving uh, of making Kenny? I noticed that you. Uh, kind of got a footing when you started directing, making short documentaries mm-hmm. and music videos. Yeah, well, the the, the step for me, um, I guess, quickly was you know left Swinburne, went into editing. The the sort of area that I found my niche very quickly was music videos, and because of I'm a drummer, you know, I was a, a drummer as a teenager, and and I think my musicality made my editing. I get a big kick out of editing music videos, mm. not because for one very simple reason. I'm a frustrated musician, and I love to give people the feeling that a band has playing that music. You know, and and musicians, when you play songs, there's a, um, you know, a chorus is fantastic, but quite often the the, the part that a band will of you know quite often love is the build up to that chorus. Is mm. that it's that that sense of building, you know, the bridge can be as important as the chorus, you know. Um, so I, I, I sort of love playing around with that. So I sort of managed to get a lot of work in, in doing music videos. And then from there, the obvious extension was then into advertising. So I was sort of editing ads. And then I started directing music videos and ads. 
And then um, I realized I needed to have some kind of presence in the film industry because I wasn't having any. So I started using the money from those two disciplines into making short films. Mm. And then um, from doing that, uh, I then started playing around with, you know, with story. Um, and yeah, Kenny was a good, like it was a good, you know, I was, you know, I was 40 when, I, when, I, when that opportunity came along. Um, I'd been making commercials for a good 10 years, I think, at that point, and uh, was looking for something to direct and, and had projects that I'd been writing and working on with various writers and what have you. But it did sort of come out of left field, and it, you know, a lot of it was due to just an impersonation that Shane did of a, a character that worked at Splashdown and a funny sort of discourse that he had with them because Shane was working at a, a, a lighting company and they were doing you know big gigs and the splashdown was turning up and delivering toilets at the same functions and <laughs> and Shane had got into a, a conversation with him and he dropped into our office and kind of relayed this story and I found it immediately very funny and Shane's impersonation was really really kind of intriguing and I saw a character there well, not 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 the character you see now but I saw there was a kernel of an idea there and for some bizarre reason I just I, it stayed with me and it was over the next few days, and I was trying to work out why it stayed. And then I realised, oh, that's right. I, I know that the humour that they're using is, is sort of an, is armour mm. to deflect, you know, the the way that they are perceived and sort of looked upon by those, um, you know, th- those that are surrounding, you know, you know, that are working alongside these guys. And I thought, and then I realised, oh yeah, that's right. I cling to. I remember that feeling. Yeah. And it's funny, but it's actually sad. You know what's and then I, I remember just thinking, why hasn't anyone done anything with this? This is gold, and that's what that was the thought. It was like, I bet you someone's done something on this. And then I started looking, I couldn't find anything. Um, and if anyone had done anything on it, it was pretty crass, you know. And then it, it made me think about all the service industry and how. And then the next week, I was at the at our office, and we had the cleaners turn up, and I noticed how they weren't making eye contact with us. Mm. And I thought, gee, there's a real there's a thing here, you know, like. There's these two different worlds, you know, and they're doing really honourable work, you know. I, you know, and then and then I thought, you know what, maybe there's something in this, and it all just sort of sprang from, you know, sprung from there. And mm. you know, I ended up contacting Splashdown and uh, through Shane, and we we you know we asked the the owner Glenn whether he was interested, and we kind of thought he might take offence to it, but he had the complete opposite. He he immediately saw what we were talking about and said, no, no, you can have the keys to the kingdom, anything you want, our crew, the trucks. And luckily for me, Shane holds a license for basically anything that's ever had an engine, <laughs> and um, so he was able to drive all these trucks. And and uh, and and Shane, having you know been a foreman, you know in the lighting industry and working with roadies and what have you, and that you know he knew how to talk to these guys and how to sort of command the troops. And so it kind of was a good fit, you know. Mm, kind of stars aligning. Yeah, it happens rarely, you know, when you. It really happens rarely when you. I've had it only maybe twice in, in my life where you're going to go. Oh, I think this is this could be gold. You know, um, the rest of the time you just you haven't got a clue. You know, I, you know. I, and having said that, even when because Kenny started off as a short film, a 47 minute movie for St Kilda Film Festival, I knew I was enjoying it, but I actually was acutely aware. I mean, I was convinced that half the audience would walk out. You know, but just because of the nature of the subject matter. You know? mm. So I was I was sort of. I underestimated clearly how an audience would respond to that character, you know. Mm. Mm. Something you said to me earlier, uh, which is something that I've been toying with for a while, is this idea that we're not all so unique, that there won't be other people yeah. who, uh, who, like this, who won't like the same. I suppose if we frame it positively, we're all very similar yes. and there's always going to be people who like the same sort of things that you like or that I like Yes, and that can relate to things in similar ways to us. Yeah, and it's, it's my attitude about, um, I think we were just talking about how difficult it is to get films made, you know, and, and, and the thing that I'm always so acutely aware of, and it comes back to why I've got my own studio, is so I can make my own films, is that, you know, as filmmakers, as creatives, we, we have dreams, we have these dreams, we have these visions, and we see them in our head. You know, every project that I'm working on, that I've been working on for the eight year, for the last eight years since, or eight or nine, or ten years now since Kenny, you know, I've I've watched those films over and over in my head, and I've really enjoyed them. It's just no one else has got to see them, mm. and I spend my entire life convincing others that my instincts are, 
you know, for those ideas are right. Now, they may not be right. There may be people out there that hate them. And this is the thing, this is the rub that I find so few people think about in this business, is that it's okay to not like my idea. Mm. Because I know there'll be someone out there that will like it because I'm not unique. I'm not so fascinating that, that, that there's going to be no one out there like me. I know that I'm a pretty average guy. So there's going to be, if I like it, there's, by definition, there's going to be many others out there that will. There'll be certainly you know, just as many that won't like it, but that's why there are things called critics. right? <laughs> if films were just categorically one thing or another, which they seem to be talked about in the industry... When you go to funding bodies and you're told categorically it's this and categorically it's that and categorically you need to do this to make it that. Well, I find it, it's all hooey. It's just, you know, because you will love a film as equally as I hate it. Mm. And you're neither wrong and I'm neither right. You know, it's, um, it's you know, our life experiences have suggested to us that we will like this because we've had things happen to us that make that subject matter relevant, funny or otherwise. Um, you know, when The Office came out, I remember hearing it, uh, they were talking about it on the ABC, you know, John Fain was talking about it. There were as many calls of irate people saying, get this thing off the television now, as there were saying, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. The ones saying, get rid of it, were still working in offices like it. Mm. The ones that were saying, I love it, had somehow survived that kind of environment and could, you know, tragedy plus time, could see the humour in it. Yeah. Um, so this has always been my 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 greatest sort of you know i remember the wonderful mel brooks saying when he worked with um on animal uh, on uh, elephant man you know with with david lynch that he said halfway through the process he realized the best he could do as a producer was to stand back and let that man just create whatever the hell it was he was seeing in his mind's eye um now that's not always like you need getting back to boundaries i'm not mm. for one minute saying you don't need boundaries and we do but I always struggle with telling someone that their dream is not is not not a valid dream because it's not my dream it's theirs and they've seen it and if they've seen relevance in it and it excites them then it's worthy mm. what I want to do is help them realize it as best I can and not have them fritter their money away or their effort or their time and and you know and it was even when I worked in video stores I had the same approach when people would come up and say what can you recommend I never recommended the films I liked ever because I thought that was pointless. Mm. I would always say, what have you seen lately that you liked? And they'd say, oh, mate, I love Death Race 2000. And you go, great. Well, you're going to really like Commando 3 or you're going to really enjoy Predator or you'll really, you know, there's this film here that's just come out that I think you'll really enjoy, you know. Did I like it? No. But, you know, then someone would come and say, I love, you know, Hotel New Hampshire. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, then in the world according to Gart, you know, go and check that out. You're... So it's... That same thing, but there's this obsession in this business here of um, trying to steer people into the perfect mm. story, and there is no such animal, you know. There, there really isn't. Mm. And when you were, I suppose, putting the finishing touches on Kenny, uh, and you were starting to promote it, mm. you were doing like Shane was doing interviews in character yeah. you you wouldn't talk about the process of making the film no um your dad who was in the film was uh giving interviews in character yeah and your thinking behind this was because you didn't want the film to have a low budget stigma attached to it well I think also at the time when Kenny when I was making Kenny I was aware that comedies had been dying we'd, we'd had a whole lot of really bad um um attendances to, to you know comedy films and there had been a whole slew of comedies made by stand-up comedians that had kind of there'd been a whole raft of them that had kind of been perceived as failing mm. and I say that because there's always this perception of our industry failing which is rubbish um, it's always healthy on some level or another you know um, it's just we, t we tend to put it we like to put a focus on the negative for some reason and that played into it it was that thing of um I was acutely aware that we were already going uphill because people had an, an impression that comedies weren't working at the cinema. I knew I had to get people off their bums to go and see the film, and I knew that it, you know I, I was asking them to go and see a cinematic experience shot on a PD-150. Mm. You know, I knew that the film looked like shit. Mm. You know, it wasn't just about shit; it looked like <laughs> shit. And um, 
And I thought, who wants to go and see a movie when I tell everyone that my brother's in it, my wife plays, you know, Kenny's wife, and my son's Kenny's son, my dad's in it, my sister's in it. A- actual fact, everyone I've ever known is in this film. And uh, who wants to see that? It sounds like a home movie. Mm. You know, it sounds like something you should rent a hall out and play it to all yeah. your friends, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I had to, I, I, I also, I, t- I often tell this story because it was very true. I, I, I noticed that one thing we do really well in this country is we, 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 we create wonderful marketing tools. But because we're Aussies, mm. you know, the, the, such a big part of being Australian is, is, is being a bit humble, you know, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. It's what makes us great as Aussies. It's the thing that Hollywood loves about us. It's why we've, we've infiltrated the, you know, that business so well is because we, we, we know how to work hard, but we also don't take ourselves too seriously. Mm. So what happens is with Australian films is you get these filmmakers that make these wonderful films. They work really hard on all the promotional material, but they don't take themselves too seriously. So when they're asked what the film's like, oh, I like it. It's good, you know. And I would see all these trailers that were great that would make me want to go to the movie. But then when I'd see interviews with the filmmaker, they'd talk them down. Well, you know, really the landscapes in this film were actually a lot more difficult to shoot on than they look in the film, you know. And you go, oh, you're actually telling people it's not quite working on the movie, you know. Mm. But why are you saying that, you know? So I, um, I immediately realized that everything that was going to come out of my mouth was just going to be a reason to not see the movie. And so I, 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 I and all my years of advertising, I'd, you know, advertising is actually a wonderful uh, training ground for how to promote film because they don't leave anything to chance. Mm. You know, they really don't. There's not a single element that isn't discussed and kind of beaten about the head and shoulders researched you know that you know they're paying you good money to sell their product and that needs to work you know and there are big agencies these you know uh expensive buildings that are mostly all lining st kilda road in the city you know rely on you succeeding in film it's kind of like oh well we tried you know well there is none of that in advertising it's like no 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 you failed we're doing it again go out there reshoot in fact we're sacking you we're getting another director in and we're redoing it you know Mm. so there's a rigor there and uh, so I applied that same rigor to marketing Kenny and I basically um, the big key to all of this is to not have the answers that's the bottom line you don't know shit we don't know whether films are good or bad. I always remember Sidney Lumet saying, there's no one that actually knows whether their film will be successful or not. And if they are, if there is someone out there, their name is Spielberg, right? <laughs> um, and it's very true. He seems to be the only person that seems to... There are two filmmakers that seem to have an, in, an, an infinite grip on how their films will be perceived. Um, David Lynch seems to have an, an unbelievable and innate sense of the subconscious. He seems to know exactly how our subconscious works and can fuck with our heads you know, like no other. And Spielberg seems to have this uncanny ability to know how to, to hit his mark, you know. Mm. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, it was uh, fascinating sort of taking on that, that, that approach. I know nothing. So I'm going to investigate and assume I know nothing and I'm going to test everything about this film from the posters to the, to the trailers to the way, to the slogans we use, to everything about it, you know. And I'm going to research, and I drove everyone insane with it. You know. mm. And having your brother doing uh, interviews in character. Yes. Um, well, I was blessed with having Shane as my brother. I mean, he's an amazing talent. And one of his skills is he has, um, he, he's very good at character immersion, you know. But the other thing that I don't know whether people know or not is that while we were doing the post on this film, um, Shane, Shane's business kind of uh, wasn't his, but the company he worked for folded and he was out of work. Right. And Glenn, who ran Splashdown, said, you know, Shane, I've watched you pretending to be the foreman at my company for the last year and you're pretty good. Like, <laughs> how about you come and do that? So once we finished making, while I was in post-production, Shane became Kenny. Right. <laughs> he actually was the foreman for Splash. He did exactly the thing you see in the movie for six months. And Shane said to me, do you think I should do this? And I said, mate, I'm going to send you out after this film's released. You will be able to answer every plumbing question ever put to you if you do this for the next six months. And so it was kind of like, 
you know, I heard stories about De Niro driving taxis before he did. Well, we did the reverse. Yeah. We sort of shot the film and then sent him out reverse to become, yeah, just so he could go out there. And my whole reasoning behind getting Shane out there was, look, the biggest thing I'm going to struggle with with this film is convincing people that it's not crass, that they're not going to go there. The first 15 minutes is because I, I went out of my way to just get every poo joke out of the way as mm. I could. Just get that, just hit him with an onslaught of it, get that out of the way and then get into character. But I thought, you know, people are going to think he's crass. You know, he's a big guy with a beard, with overalls. And this came out of all my research too, that they thought he was a thug. So I thought, what's the number one thing that I love about my movie? And it's, it's the character. It's his heart. And I thought, well, I don't even need to get him into a cinema for that. I can just send Kenny out there and let the world hear that he's got this big heart. That he's actually, he doesn't say shit. He doesn't, you know, he finds other ways to talk about the job that he knows people don't want to hear about. Have them see how funny he is. We wrote, we, we, we wrote scripts and, and, and whole, we came up with, we spent a, a long time putting together how he would talk and what he would talk about, what he would say and what he wouldn't say, what he would reveal and what he wouldn't reveal. And all these jokes about the producer, Shane Jacobs. Shane Jacobs was one of the co-producers. He never met him. You know, every time they were on set, this guy never showed up. You don't know what this guy does. You know, so there's all that sort of fun and games. <laughs> And, 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 it, and it worked. It, sort of, um, it meant that the only thing an audience had left to do was like, well, I like this guy. I, I like this character, right? That's half the paddle with everyone will tell you at every funding body that you've got to make your character sympathetic. Mm. Well, I had people sympathetic to him before they even walked into the cinema. So that was the thing. Make, make, make him sympathetic. And then the next question is, well, let's go and see this fucking thing and see what he does in it. You know, mm. I like him. He sounds funny. What does he do in this movie? Uh, and so the role of the trailer was then to show that there was fun stuff to watch. So every element of the marketing was about answering the overall question of should we go and see this film? So, you know, not talking about how we made it was hiding the fact that it was made on a low budget. The soundtrack I spent a lot of money on because I wanted it to be head and shoulders sound like a real Hollywood film, you know. The poster was designed to not scare off women because you know we were finding that women were basically put off by the subject and so the emphasis on the poster was to suggest there was some kind of romantic uh it wasn't all just blokey stuff you know mm. the, um and so you know hence the title a night in shining overalls and my son came up with the idea of a rose you know because it's kind of romantic and it's an and, and it's a foil to the smells of you know of shit and you know just simple <laughs> stuff there's nothing really kind of groundbreaking in any of this but you know, and then the trailer was all about just saying, you know, you know how you haven't been having a good time in the cinema with the comedies of late. Well, you know, you will there will be laughs in this. You know, mm. you you know, and I and that was my main aim. Just make sure the trailer gets everyone laughing in the cinema together, so they can go, oh, well, everyone's sort of enjoying this. You know, and then the character walking around the streets, drawing everyone in, might do the job. You know, but there was more. It wasn't, but that wasn't enough <laughs> because on the first weekend we only did sixty five thousand to seventy thousand. Mm. Um, you know, word of mouth takes five weeks, you know, uh, and we massaged that like maniacs, you know, sent Shane around Australia five times, gave away 40,000 seats, wow. um, sent DVDs to every cinema manager, kind of making them feel like they were a part of it. Uh, Q&As, you know, giveaways. We made a doll, you know, that we put out there because we knew that would create a perception that the film was worthy of a doll. It must be good. Mm. But it wasn't. It was just, you know, we knew that would... You know, <laughs> comes back to Dad's old carnival days. It was, you know, yeah, yeah. selling something that wasn't quite there, you know. Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors, yeah. And, you know, uh, with the success that the film eventually did bring in, uh, suddenly you and Shane were perceived as these kind of overnight successes. But really what was behind that overnight success was, what, almost 15 years of really hard work and well for you you know since you being were being tromped around my uncles and aunties home standing up on a stool miming to Danny Kay yeah <laughs> yeah but, uh, but I think that's true I don't think anyone's an overnight success you know I really I don't think I mean I'm sure even the guy that you know what was that that um what was that uh the Asian guy that did that dance that everyone oh uh, you know, Gangnam Style yeah Gangnam Style I guarantee if you spoke to that guy about his life you know yeah, it's been a long build-up to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd been dancing at parties for years. Everyone yeah. thought he was great because he couldn't dance. And he somehow turned that around into, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, Shane went out and wrote a book called, you know, The Long Road to Overnight Success, you know, because mm. 
it's true. I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's just hard, you know, making your mark, you know. Mm, and I think that also brings in what one's definition of success is as well. My definition of success, quite honestly, is when you can go into a restaurant and read a menu and not look at the price. Huh. That's always been my... Uh, it's meaning if you're, if you're in, in, going somewhere and having to worry about whether you can afford... You know, and I'm not talking about high-class restaurants. Yeah, talking, no, I know what you're I'm, talking about. I'm talking about you know, <laughs> any restaurant, yep. the Chinese restaurant down the road. That's my sign of success because uh, I know that you know, most people in the world are looking at the prices. Mm. Um, uh, and for the last four years, I've been looking at the prices. You know, <laughs> mm. you know, developing films is uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of money to be made in that. You know, no. my my partner, thank God, has been keeping us alive. You know, um, so we've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, price gazing. You know, mm. <laughs> looking at uh, that dollar symbol. Yeah, but I think you know, I think success at the end of the day for a creative person is is that balance of of um, not not um, getting to a point where you're not. You're not driving yourself insane with the fact that you're not being given a chance to re- realise your dreams, uh, and having a, a, a balance where there's still an element of frustration and anxiety about those things, but but the um, the chance to to express yourself creatively is is being met, you know, at at least fifty five percent of the time rather than thirty percent of the time. Mm. You know? I think I think you know I think I think even directors that are just constantly working, like my good mate Creve, who's just always stepping from one. You know, I'm sure he still feels frustration about, you know, certain projects that he would just love to get up. You know, so it, yeah, it's about that 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 balance, and um, you know, it's a funny business, isn't it? You know, it took my partner many years to realize that when she walked past me in a room and I was sort of staring with my head cocked to one side, staring at a blank wall, that I was actually hard at work. <laughs> you know, I was really, because, you know, and yep. she said, yeah, you know, I go, but you don't know where I just was. I, was, I wasn't in the room. I was, mm. I've just been having a whole conversation. I've just watched an entire battle unfold, mm. you know, while that fly crawled across the, uh, the wall there. I didn't see the fly, but, um, yeah, because... <laughs> <laughs> it is. We're a strange. We're a strange mob. Mm. I'm sure when, if there is a a, a higher force, a, like a a supreme being, and we we meet them, we meet our maker, and and he, and he or she says, and it'll most likely be a she. So it says, uh, so what did you do with your your life? And you tell them that you were a filmmaker, and they say, well, what's that? And you go, well, it's we basically create, we we replicate things that happen in life. Why? So, so people can watch them, you know. Why? Because I don't know. We're maybe they're too lazy sometimes to do those things themselves. I mean, we tend to live through other people, but that's insane. I built all this stuff so you could actually do this stuff, mm. not watch other people do it. So you've spent your entire life reimagining the thing I've actually made for you to to to, to spoil yourself in. What a waste! You go over in that little room. All the filmmakers are in that room over there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And we're, you know, it's purgatory. Yeah, it's purgatory. Yeah, we, we'll be watching videos and films, beautiful films, like all shot on Technicolor, mm, with um, German name, G- German directors. names directing. But it's all, yeah. You'll be watching films about heaven. You actually have no place here. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great analogy. I think that's a that's an amazing place to kind of uh, end our conversation. I feel like there's so much more we haven't spoken about as well. I mean, we're, what ten more years of your career? I hope. Um, I hope so. Well, that we haven't even touched on yet. Oh, right. Uh, from, yeah, I'm hoping there's another 10. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there'll be at least another 10. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about that before, too. I, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be a filmmaker. I mean, everyone's sort of in the uh, a bit doom and gloom at the moment, but I actually I, I, I think technology is going to continue to, to bring about some amazing uh, change. These Lytra cameras that are coming out, uh, I can just see where that's going to go. This business of being able to actually extrapolate all the light values of, of, of a space into a 3D space so that you can then have full control over lighting focus, depth, you know, depth of field and, um, and, and dispense with green screens, blue screens. There's, there's an enormous potential with, with that, I think. Um, mm. And I don't really understand enough about it. But look at look that camera up. I think it's L Y 
TRA, the Lytro. Mm. They exist as still cameras at the moment, but they've, they've, they've built a, a movie version that they were, I think it was at the latest expo that they were doing. And um, it's an incredible thing that I'm sure within the next five years, uh, you know, I remember watching the Michael Jackson video where, where the, the guys and girls were morphing into each other. Oh, and, uh, black um, and white. Black and white. And everyone at the time was saying, oh, when will we ever get our hands on that? And I said, that'll be on your phone within, you know, five years. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm watching kids walking around now with Snapchat or whatever that is. And yeah, yeah. They're holding these things in the air and they're, they're watching on their phone what would have cost me about $40,000 in the <laughs> 80s to do on an in-excess video, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, exciting. Mm. What do you think sixteen-year-old uh, Clay would think if he was uh, standing here looking at your studio oh, no. and you? Oh, he'd be impressed, but he'd be saying, "You're pretty fucking old." Like, I thought we were going to do this twenty years ago. Right? <laughs> <laughs> What's the story? Didn't you know? I remember, like two months ago, you jumping up and down when you saw Close Encounters and and uh, Star Wars, saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I'll be doing that at twenty-five. Yeah, something must have gotten away." Yeah. And something did, and it was beautiful. And I called kids. Yeah, you know. So yeah, I have uh, I have one question which I end every conversation with, and that question is, what makes you silly? Um, life makes me silly. I'm at my silliest when I'm just doing. My favorite thing is just having fun with strangers. Did it this morning. Went into a shop selling shirts and you know work gear and um i went in there ahead of my partner and i was talking to the guy behind the counter we were being very serious about what i was going to buy and then she came in through the front door and i yelled at really loud don't let her in you know and um (laughs) and and vic's known me long enough now to play along with it and he just looked at me like what's going on and i sort of let her let the air just sort of hang there for a a moment before oh no she's all right she can let her in i've been married (laughs) for 27 years so we're really good you know yeah, it's a life, you know, a family. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and farting. And farting. Yeah. Shitty jokes. <laughs> Shitty jokes. Like, no avoiding that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Clay. Thank you, mate.